Welcome to Crisis Leadership, Coronavirus Edition, an original series and public service from Diversion Podcasts. Over five episodes, one of the world's leading crisis management experts, Dr. Charles Castor, takes what he has learned throughout his career and applies it to the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic, preparing you to overcome the unprecedented hurdles of today and tomorrow. Crisis Leadership Coronavirus Edition is for leaders, for mentors, and for anyone who wants a peek behind the curtain at how our governments and large organizations handle or mishandle major crises. This is Episode 2, Crawl, Walk, Run, Matching the Speed of the Crisis. I'm Dr. Charles Casto, Safety Consultant and Researcher on Extreme Crisis Leadership. This podcast mini-series discusses the commonalities in leadership between the Fukushima nuclear meltdowns and the coronavirus meltdown. In this podcast, I'll discuss the commonalities in the failure of extreme crisis leadership between the two events. Upon my arrival in Japan, I found that there really was not an effective leadership structure in place. Multiple ministries were acting alone, as well as the prefectural governments. Despite the fact that Japan's ready for major earthquakes and tsunamis, the magnitude of this disaster, and with the complication of the nuclear disaster, failed that emergency response system. For the natural disasters, like earthquake and tsunami, it is relatively simple to gather data or information regarding the devastated communities. That's an enemy that can be seen. But with a nuclear event, there was almost a complete lack of data and information flow. The destruction at the plant had wiped out almost all of the instrumentation that could provide the status of the reactors and the potential for radioactive releases. That is the unseen enemy, radiation. Similarly, COVID-19 is an invisible enemy. You can't fight an enemy that you can't see. So we must make the enemy visible with testing. In Japan, for that first week, the operators struggled mightily to get accurate information about Fukushima Daiichi. It was thought, and there was rampant speculation, that the Japanese were withholding information from the world because they understood how bad the situation was for the reactors, or that they were in denial about the extensiveness of the accident. Some say that the Chinese were in the same position for COVID-19. I found that in those early days, the Japanese government really just didn't understand the technology. Only Prime Minister Khan had somewhat of a working knowledge of the reactors. Certainly, his government officials did not understand them. And for me, from the outside looking in, the Japanese government nuclear regulator seemed incompetent as well. The academics in Japan were taking an approach that was overly focused on theoretical issues. And this became highly distracting and their ideas were antithetical to the conditions on the ground. The nuclear utility headquarters was in disarray, and complicating matters was that the nuclear utility was not really an operating company. As with many utilities in Japan, they had entrusted contractors to maintain the reactors. Most of the contractors disappeared during the accident. Thus, you have no first responders. They had left the site. Around March 20th, 2011, U.S. Ambassador John Ruse was contacted by the Japanese government about a potential to hold bilateral meetings with all of the players involved. 
This meeting would thought would help all of us understand the situation. We could jointly talk about physical and technical needs. To their credit, the Japanese government wanted to get organized and they wanted to get organized with us. And they recognized that having one primary communication channel would facilitate that. So on the 20th of March, we held a trial meeting with the Japanese government at their Ministry of Defense. That first meeting had so many people attending, it just wasn't very effective at all. It was too crowded, too many voices. I had instructed our team to remain relatively quiet and let's just listen to what the Japanese had to say. However, when the Japanese realized that we were not going to scream or yell or generally be obnoxious with them, they requested to have another meeting the next evening. That meeting was held at the Kantai or the cabinet building next to the prime minister's residence or the White House, where we could better control the attendance. That March 21st Kantai meeting was attended by the top level people from the American government contingent and cabinet ministers from the Japanese government, along with nuclear utility representatives. During these meetings, which lasted many, many hours, we'd receive a briefing on the current status of the reactors. We'd share our advice and coordinate requests for information and material from the Japanese government and the utility. These meetings served as a method to stabilize the relationship between government and industry to limit the amount of confusion and miscommunications that we experienced in the first days of the accident. Wisely, experts from the private sector were brought in to help create a unified command system, which worked very well. Under this strong public-private alliance, joint plans and solutions were made based on solid facts. Mere five-minute calls between the president and key CEOs are insufficient to fight the pandemic we now face. We need to bring in our strongest CEOs into a unified command with the government. In Japan, the disjointed response structure led to deaths during the evacuation. What we see today is the disjointed response structure for COVID-19 is leading to unnecessary deaths. A unified government response is needed to stop bad behaviors. It was encouraging to see the expansion of the government response to COVID by bringing FEMA in. Although that decision was too late and it happened as late as March 19th, but it was crucial to put FEMA in charge and not the technical experts, not the medical experts. Slowly but surely, an effective response structure will be established. An effective response structure leads to effective strategies and effective decision-making. In the Fukushima case, the response strategy was to pump water into the reactors to keep them from melting and then measure the amount of radiation being released. Operators knew that if radiation levels dropped, or remain status quo as a result of this action, their strategy was working. So the leader wouldn't change the strategy unless the facts dictated a change. Strategies were not affected by extraneous things like rumor, political pressure, or non-technical data. To complement that way of thinking, those of us that were brought in to help coordinate the response, we set goalposts for our superiors. The ambassador, the White House, everyone above us. We explained to them what we thought was the best worst-case scenario was, as well as the worst worst-case scenario. In this situation, there are no best cases or even a good case. We laid out specific parameters like water in, no radiation out for these scenarios so that the leaders above us would know if the situation exceeded those parameters, if that would happen, 
it would mean our strategy had failed. So each day we could just report back to the leaders that we're still within those goalposts. Some facts may have changed, some information may have come in, but we're basically on track, water in, no radiation out. In an unfolding crisis, if information comes in that's outside the goalpost, some random, unverified, or some speculation, unless it's an immediate threat to someone, it's best just to let that data bake. Let it sit there to see if it's joined by other data points that support it, indicating that the goalposts need to be moved. We didn't share that raw information upward. Short of that, it's important to keep the goalposts constant. Shifting goalposts confuse the leader and the public. Without goalposts, solid parameters that is, every piece of data that comes in can potentially cause confusion and chaos. We see that today with the COVID-19 crisis. There's a lot of data pouring in all the time and various people at all levels responding to it randomly without context. Effective leadership means watching out for distractions caused by a lack of information or from too much information without clear context. Random ideas don't help. A coherent strategy does. For instance, prescribing malaria drugs may be a positive thing, but that information should be held closely. Oversharing information raises unfounded optimism and is a foundation for a huge disappointment and a loss of trust in the leader. So leaders must be brought together in unity to establish a strategy or a roadmap or a mental model for their response. We should not be responding to random data points or recommendations. We need to make the situation predictable and comprehensive rather than emotional or over-optimistic. For the COVID-19 response, the Crimson Contagion Report would have provided a roadmap for our leaders. Unfortunately, that report was not acted upon. Recently, the U.S. government created a crisis response plan for COVID-19 does not appear to me that the report is being used as a roadmap. The strategy for COVID-19, as with any crisis of this magnitude, must match what I call the speed of the crisis. In other words, leaders must lead at the speed of the virus, and that is fast. Not only must they keep pace with events as they unfold, but they must also try to get ahead of them to prevent things from cascading. Once events begin to cascade, Control over them becomes very difficult. So leaders must move faster than the virus. At Fukushima, that model model was shared by providing the workers with valid information. We need to share with all the Americans the data on these difficult issues of supply and demand. For that purpose, you need to create an indicator or a dashboard that shares with the public the number of hospital beds, ventilators, PPE, etc. that are available at any given time. The more information people have, even the kind it's difficult to process, the more settled and calm they will be, and the more able and willing they'll be to follow guidelines. Information is the best antidote we have for fear. In 2011, the way the Japanese government behaved during the initial days and weeks of the nuclear crisis set the stage for whether the public could trust what they said later. For COVID-19, Early optimistic statements slowed our response and they impacted the trust in our leadership. The good news in this area is during the Fukushima crisis, it took about 10 days for the government and utility to get over their denial and join in a unified command. 
At that point, they had begun to crawl. Within several weeks, they were walking, and several months later, they were running. I see this same trend with the COVID-19 response. We're over the denial stage into the crawling stage. Although at this point, there seems to be some over-optimism present in some leaders. Nevertheless, soon our leaders will be running and we will make significant progress. This crawl, walk, run response seems natural with unfathomable extreme crisis events. In the next podcast, I'll discuss decision-making in an extreme crisis. Thanks for listening to Crisis Leadership, Coronavirus Edition, a Diversion Podcast's original series. Crisis Leadership was written and hosted by Dr. Charles Casto. Executive Producers, Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Diversion brings real stories to life. Hear more engaging shows at diversionpodcasts.com. And if you're enjoying this show, check out this other great series from Diversion, The War Queens. Hi, I'm Emily Jordan. My dad writes military history, a history written by men about men. That is, until the day I asked him why he didn't write about women as war leaders. Emily, that's because nobody writes about wars from the perspective of women. Until now. Five years ago, my dad and I started looking into the stories of women who led their nations in wartime throughout history. These queens of swords have been winning wars for over 2,500 years, and they defeated some of the greatest male commanders in their day. As we look deeper into the rich history of women leading armies, Emily and I learned that each woman has a fascinating story to tell. Join us for fascinating true stories of powerful women waging war and teaching us lessons about power, politics, and inner strength.